Hello, everyone, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is episode four, in which we will discuss chapter three of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled Edmund and the Wardrobe. And last week, we saw Lucy's first journey through the wardrobe into Narnia, where she discovers this grand, wintry land. Uh, but she also discovers that this land is cursed by a white witch, where it is always winter and never Christmas. While she's there, she meets Tumnus, who uh, informs her of the current state of Narnia under the witch's spell, but also uh, tells her of this great prophecy that humans are prohibited from Narnia because the white witch is trying to thwart this grand prophecy, this grand story that will result in kings and queens, human beings reigning in Narnia. And in this way, Lucy discovers in many ways, who and what she really is. The first evidence of that is Tumnus's question regarding whether she is a daughter of Eve. Is she human? Is she made in the image of God? Is she greater than the talking beasts of Narnia? Is she one of these human beings that the white witch is so afraid of? And that is such a meaningful identity for Lucy, that she is much more than just Lucy Pevensey of London but that she is a daughter of Eve, and then ultimately that she is a queen of Narnia, Queen Lucy the Valiant, that that is her destiny. And so through that chapter, we saw her interactions with Tumnus, and we saw his great act of bravery to not turn Lucy in to the White Witch as he had planned, but rather to smuggle her back to her freedom, to the wardrobe. But last week, we discussed this nature of identity, this notion that we must discover who we really are. Um, it's like in the movie Hook, where Peter Pan has forgotten who and what he really is, and he has grown old, and he must return to Neverland to discover what he really is again, and to fulfill his great purpose, and to become who he was always meant to be. The same is true here of Lucy. Uh, and it also foreshadows, in many ways, one of the great scenes in the Chronicles that occur at the end of the silver chair, where Eustace and Jill and Puddleglum, the Marsh Wiggle, are uh, trying to free Prince Will Prince Rillian from his captivity to the silver chair, and the Queen of Underland uh, casts this charm, this musical spell, where she throws this potion in the fire, it creates this sweet atmosphere that lulls the children and Puddleglum into this trance into the stupor and she tries to convince them that there's no such thing as Narnia. There's no such thing as an overland. There's no such thing as a world above this one. Uh, and that she tries to uh, drown them in this sweet and sickening falsehood that all that is real, all that there really is, is this underground sterile environment. And of course, Puddleglum has that great moment of bravery where he stamps out the fire and proclaims that he would rather live like a Narnia, live like a Narnian, even if there is no real Narnia. And uh, he destroys the witch's spell. Th this sense of breaking out of the daydream, breaking out of the Shadowlands, breaking out of this false sense of all that we really are, and moving further up into this discovery of what we really are. And so that happened with Lucy, where she's invited to see herself in Narnia. The same will happen for Edmund, that he stumbles into Narnia and he, over the next few chapters, will discover what he really is, 
And what he really is, is a spiteful, cynical, childish boy. And there's a difference here that Joseph Pierce describes in his book, Further Up and Further In, where he says there's a difference between being childlike and being childish. And Lucy is childlike. She embraces the magic and the enchantment of the story. She is willing by faith to move into Narnia. Edmund is childish, priggish, uh, bossy, spiteful, um, resentful. And that is a a clear-cut difference that Lewis will weave throughout the stories. Later on in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he'll have a similar character, Eustace Scrub, who is a cynic and who is a spiteful character, uh, who is quite childish, that he does not have that childlike faith in wonder, but he has this very narrow-minded, cynical view of what's real and what life is. And so in Edmund, in this story, we get that same uh, beginning, that Edmund at this stage of the narrative is unredeemed, that he is stone-hearted, and that he needs to be awakened from that. And of course, later on in the story, Aslan will make the ultimate sacrifice to free Edmund from his stone heart. But right now in this stage, when he gets to Narnia, he discovers what he really is, just like Lucy did. And that discovery comes in the interactions with the White Witch, whom he will meet by the end of this chapter. Uh, but there's a great deal of irony in this chapter where we see the parallels, the parallels between Lucy and Edmund here quite clearly and their different destinies where Lucy meets Tumnus and Edmund meets the White Witch. But the very beginning of chapter three, Lucy stumbles out of the wardrobe back into the room and finds out that hardly any time, if any at all, has passed in England while she has spent hours with Tumnus in Narnia. And she tries to uh, calm everybody and reassure everybody that she's fine. And they, of course, don't know what she means. But there's a really telling moment from Peter where Lucy asks if they've been wondering where she was. And Peter says, so you've been hiding, have you? Said Peter. Poor old Lou, hiding and nobody noticed. You'll have to hide longer than that if you want people to start looking for you. And this statement from Peter is the first of many that will come from the other siblings toward Lucy of their uh, disbelief that they think she's just make, making all this up. She's playing pretend. She's trying to gain attention. And Edmund, of course, will be one of the, the harshest critics of Lucy's story. Um, but this statement from Peter where he says, so you've been hiding, have you? Uh, hiding and nobody noticed. I think there's some real meaning to that statement because... The irony is she hasn't been hiding in a wardrobe at all. She's been finding. She's been discovering. She's been unraveling and unpacking who she is. And when he says hiding and nobody noticed, the irony there is that um, their inability to notice what Lucy has been experiencing does not negate what Lucy has been experiencing. A blind man does not negate the existence of the sun, Doug Wilson says. That just because Peter and Susan and Edmund couldn't see what Lucy was doing doesn't mean that what she was doing wasn't real. It wasn't true. It wasn't important and significant to who Lucy is. Just because the world didn't notice doesn't mean it wasn't real. And that's such a uh, center to Lewis's view of fantasy and fairy tale that these worlds help us to see our world so much better. It's what Chesterton says in Orthodoxy, where fairy tales make uh, rivers run with wine to remind us that they run with water. 
We are the ones who are half-hearted creatures, as Lewis says in The Weight of Glory. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily distracted. We are the ones that do not notice. We do not peer into the mystery and the depth of the story. We do not ask and invite and question and step further into the wardrobe with our hands held out in front of us like Lucy did. We are far too easily pleased. And so for Peter to say, oh, nobody noticed. Poor old Lou is hiding in a wardrobe. I think the beauty of the irony is that the reader knows exactly what Lucy was up to in the wardrobe. And she was guiding uh, the light. She was leaning into the story. She was discovering and beginning to break the witch's spell already. That It hasn't broken yet. That will happen when Aslan's on the move. But Lucy entering Narnia is that first inkling that one of the queens and kings of Narnia has arrived. That she is stepping into her prophecy. She is leaning into her destiny. She is fulfilling the narrative of God by stepping one human foot into Narnia after another. And Peter's statement that nobody noticed that Lucy was hiding, I think, is undercut pretty quickly by that reality. A second statement there about Lucy's experience, Edmund says that she's batty. She's being quite batty, and he points at her head like she's out of her mind. And the irony there is that what is about to occur to Edmund in just a few short paragraphs that uh, Lucy most certainly is not out of her mind because the very experience she just had, Edmund is about to have, although in an entirely different way. They go on. Peter says she's just making a story up for fun, uh, just reducing and trivializing everything that Lucy's claiming to have experienced. And I love uh, Lucy's statement here where she's fighting back. I love Lucy's bravery here, that she's fighting back against her siblings and their disbelief and their skepticism and their doubt. And she's fighting back with the truth of her experience. She knows what she has seen. And may that be said of me, that I will fight back against this modern world of skepticism and doubt and disbelief by defending what it is that I have seen and what I have experienced. And she says to Peter, no, Peter, I'm not. It's a magic wardrobe. There's a wood inside it, and it's snowing, and there's a fawn and a witch, and it's called Narnia. Come and see. And you know that when Lewis wrote those three words, come and see, that he's echoing Jesus' statement to his disciples in John 1. Come and see. Come and see. When Jesus asks his disciples what they're seeking, they say back to him, where are you staying? We seek you. We're following you. And he says, come and see. It's the invitation to follow. It's the invitation to imitate. It's the invitation to become like, to grow into who you were meant to be, to become like Christ. It's the invitation to become that Lucy followed. She followed the thread. She put one foot in front of the other. And now she's defending it to everyone else. There's a magic forest in that wardrobe. And there's a witch and there's a fawn and it's called Narnia. Come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. This is the invitation before all of us. Come to the banqueting table and see how good the Lord is. And of course, they don't see it. They go into the wardrobe. Peter opens it up and they start moving in to check, to see, to rationally, empirically discover whether this is true. We're going to test it with our senses. We're going to measure it to see if Lucy's telling the truth rather than have to rely on faith and just believe Lucy. 
They go to experiment and test and prove rationally if she's right. Peter went in and wrapped his knuckles on it to make sure that it was solid. He tests the back of the wardrobe. And he says, a jolly good hoax, Lou, he said as he came out again. You have really taken us in. I must admit, we half believed you. We half believed you. What a devastating statement. Half belief is insufficient. It's not enough to half believe somebody. We must surrender totally. We must have an all-in sort of faith. And for Peter to say, we have believed you, Lucy, is not enough. We must completely believe Lucy. We must completely believe Aslan. We cannot leave a measure of truth and reality up to us and our own deciphering and our own measuring and our own proving. We cannot give God 95% of our faith and reserve the other 5% for our doubt. We must completely surrender to the story. We must completely give over to God. It's like what Lewis wrote about in Surprised by Joy when he describes his conversion. He says, I chose to unbuckle. I chose to let go. And then later on, he says, I say I chose, but to me, it did not seem I could do otherwise. And we are all in. Uh, This is what Aslan will say to Jill uh, later on when she faces the stream. He says, there is no other stream. You cannot go around Aslan. You cannot circumvent me. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus says. This is it. I am the door. And what Peter and Susan and Edmund are trying to do is discover Narnia on their own terms, with their own senses, with their own reasons, on their own timetable. And that is not going to happen. The invitation has to be offered, and we step into it further in, further in, just like Lucy did through the wardrobe. But this also prompts the question, what changed? If Lucy is able to open a wardrobe and stick her hand out and move the coats aside and walk into Narnia, but Peter opens the wardrobe and sticks his hand out and moves the coat aside and only discovers the back, what changed? And it's a really good question. You could just simply say, oh, this is just Lewis's story. He decides to let Narnia be available to some kids at some times and not to other kids at other times. And that's true. Uh, And it certainly invites the idea of whether or not Lucy did something that Peter didn't. Did Lucy open the door the right way? Did she have the right password? That's certainly not the case. But it brings us back to the moment where Lucy is going through the wardrobe. All the way back in chapter one, where she walks through it. What changed? And a really interesting moment occurs as Lucy walks through the wardrobe. It's really interesting Uh, repetition that Lewis uses of a particular phrase. If you go back to chapter one and read the account where Lucy walks through the wardrobe, it's quite startling to see what Lewis might have been implying about how one is able to enter Narnia. And so listen to these statements from Lewis back from chapter one. Soon she went further in and found that there was a second row of coats hanging up behind the first one. And then again, She took a step further in, then two or three steps, always expecting to feel woodwork against the tips of her fingers, but she could not feel it. Next moment, she found that what was rubbing against her face and hands was no longer soft. Then the final moment. A moment later, she found that she was standing in the middle of a wood at nighttime with snow under her feet and snowflakes falling through the air. So through the course of three paragraphs there, as Lucy's moving further in, 
we have the repetition of this word found. She found that there was a second row of coats. She found that what was rubbing against her face and hands was no longer soft fur. And she found that she was standing in the middle of a wood. And that movement, I think, is, is striking. How do you get into Narnia? You find yourself there. Lucy found herself in Narnia with the initiative entirely on God's side. It's like with Jill, the same moment with Jill and Aslan, where she's trying to move around Aslan to get to the water. And Aslan says, there is no other stream and you cannot move beside me. And uh, in that moment, Lewis says about Jill, it says, her mind suddenly made itself up. Her mind suddenly made itself up. Notice the language. Lucy found herself in Narnia. She was walking through a wardrobe and then she found herself in Narnia. That's how it happens. You just discover that you're there. God draws you and you discover that you're there. And also just the irony too, that she found herself in Narnia. That's absolutely true. She discovered who she was. She finds her identity in Narnia. She finds who she really is there, but also that she's walking and walking and walking and discovers that she's in Narnia. No scheme, no manipulation, no map, no compass of hers can get her there. She walks by faith, willing to discover what is next and she finds herself there. And so we go back to chapter three with Peter, trying to test the wardrobe, trying to test the magic, see if he can understand it or grip it, to reason with it, to figure it out. And that's not allowed. It's just like in The Magician's Nephew. Uncle Andrew, the magician, tries to figure out the source of magic. He tries to use science to figure out how to uh, move through the different worlds. And there's a certain amount of magic and faith that cannot be known. It cannot be understood. It cannot be diagrammed or dissected or analyzed. You just find yourself there. And that's certainly the case with Lucy and also with Edmund, that you end up there when you least expect it. And so later on in the chapter, about halfway through Edmund, they're playing a game of hide and seek and Edmund hops in the wardrobe and being, he being spiteful. Lewis says he at once decided to get into it himself, not because he thought it a particularly good place to hide, but because he wanted to go on teasing her about her imaginary country. This is Edmund's childishness. This is his spite. This is his malice, that he is in need of redemption. He is a sinful person. All four of the children are, but Edmund is the character where we really see the depravity of the human heart on display. He goes in there to try to gain more ammunition to destroy Lucy. The irony though here as well is that he moves further into the wardrobe and discovers he is in Narnia as well. He needs to be tested. He needs to discover who he really is, which remember he's a king. He will become King Edmund, the just, that he will be redeemed. Aslan will See to it that Edmund's story is a redemptive one. He is chosen. He will be uh, on the throne. He will fulfill the prophecy just like Lucy, although it will look wildly different. But there's some interesting language in this paragraph as Edmund moves in through the wardrobe that's quite different from Lucy's. Lewis says, He jumped in and shut the door, forgetting what a very foolish thing this is to do. And remember, this contrasts directly with what Lucy chose to do. She left the door open out of her wisdom Edmund shuts it foolishly. Then he began feeling about for Lucy in the dark. 
He had expected to find her in a few seconds and was very surprised when he did not. He decided to open the door again and let in some light, but he could not find the door either. He didn't like this at all and began groping wildly in every direction. He even shouted out, Lucy, Lou, where are you? I know you're here. I find this moment fascinating because the complete atmosphere and and the tone Lewis is using to describe this is in direct contrast to Lucy's. Lucy moving through the wardrobe was filled with wonder, joy, intrigue, magic. Edmund's portrait is one of fear, groping wildly in the dark, looking for the light. And it's that quest for the light that connects Lucy and Edmund. Because remember, Lucy's name means light. It's from the root word lux in Latin, meaning light. And she is the light bearer. She is filled with innocence and beauty and joy. And she sees the lamppost and is drawn to it. Edmund is looking for Luke, uh, looking for Luke, looking for light, looking for Lucy and unable to find it. Listen to that passage again. He began feeling about for Lucy in the dark. And remember what her name means. He's looking for light in the dark. He's looking for her. He'd expected to find her and was very surprised when he did not. He decided to open the door again and let in some light, but he could not find the door either. This is a a frightening image of groping about in the dark, looking for the light and being unable to find it. This is a portrait of the lost. This is a portrait of sin being trapped in the darkness of your own making. Remember, Edmund shut the door on himself. Edmund enclosed himself in the wardrobe and is now frantic for light that he cannot find, looking for Lucy in the dark, looking for the door to let in some light, and he can't find the door either. And this brings to mind another scene from The Last Battle, the final book, where the dwarves uh, encase themselves into their own prison where they are trapped, stuck forever in the darkness of their own design. That they are not truly in the dark, but they have blinded themselves with their pride and their selfishness, with their great chant. The dwarves are for the dwarves. They cared for no one else but themselves. And the product of their greed and their selfishness is an eternal blindness. That they are unable to be satisfied by anything that they eat or drink. And they are unable to find the light to pierce the darkness. They are blind and paralyzed to light and pleasure forever. And that is their great doom in the last battle. And Edmund's fate here is similar. He's groping about for light in the wardrobe and unable to find it until at last he's drawn into Narnia. He finds himself there and uh, calls out for Lucy, can't find her anywhere. Doesn't want to admit that he's wrong. Uh, holding on to his menacing spite to the last. And then we get at the very end of the chapter, this entry of the white witch, this grand entrance where she comes in to the scene in a sledge drawn by reindeer. Edmund had decided that he did not very much like this place. He is not intrigued by Narnia like Lucy was, but he's put off by it. He wants to get back to what he knows. He wants to get back to what is reasonable and comfortable He's not willing for the adventure. He is is not liking it. He's drawn away from it. But we get the White Witch's entrance here, and we get these three different colors that are used to describe her. White, red, and gold. 
And of course, the white witch, we talked last week about how that white is the whiteness of death and pallor and sterility, the whiteness of barrenness and of nothingness. And uh, Lewis even goes at, pains, goes at pains to say that her face was white, not pale, but the whiteness, the absolute stark whiteness of snow or paper or icing sugar, except for her very red mouth. And so we get uh, a depiction of the snow in Narnia. She's wearing polar bear's fur along with the dwarf that's guiding the sledge. They're both clothed in white. And then, of course, her white face. We get the image of red as well. The harness was of scarlet leather. Uh, on the dwarf's head was a red hood. And then, of course, the red mouth, the very red mouth of the white witch. And then also we get this image of gold where the horns of the uh, reindeer are gilded. Um, we get a gold tassel coming from the dwarf's red hood, and then we get a golden wand and a golden crown from the white witch. So quite a great deal of color imagery going on. The white and the red we saw already with Tumnus in chapter one, which certainly some uh, images of atonement and purity that is to come. Here, though, we get the perversion of those images, the redness of blood, the redness of death, and the whiteness of sterility and barrenness in the White Witch, where those atonement colors have a diametric opposite in the White Witch, where they are the colors of death and of violence and of, of bloodshed, which of course she will demand of Edmund when he uh, betrays his siblings, that she will demand the blood. But of course, Aslan will redeem that with his grace and his blood being shed uh, in Edmund's place. But also this image of the gold, which gold is a regal color. It's a, a color of royalty and kingliness, which Aslan, uh, you know, of course, his golden fur will be described constantly. And his, uh, the flag of Narnia will be a red backdrop with a golden lion. But here, too, we see the perversion of that color. We see fool's gold. We see artificial gold. Remember, hers is a false reign. She is a false queen. And so she, her ruling wand and her ruling crown are golden, but it is a perverted gold, just like the red and the white that she displays is a perversion of those atonement colors of purity and of grace. At the very end of the paragraph where she's described, it says it was a beautiful face in other respects, but proud and cold and stern. And those adjectives describe the white witch perfectly. She is cold, lifeless, stern. She's inhuman, striking and stunning that she's quite tall and quite alluring. She has a beautiful face, but it is marred. It is disfigured at the core. It is a beautiful face that hides a very ugly heart. And that's how evil works. Remember what she'll do in the next chapter, the Turkish delight that she offers Edmund, which we'll see next week. It looks lovely. It looks beautiful. It looks satisfying. She looks very much like a queen. She looks very regal. Her entrance is very dramatic. But yet, beneath the surface is nothing but snow, barrenness, stone, coldness. There's nothing but anger and fear and hatred. And this is just such an image of evil for Lewis, that evil itself is bland and dull and numb and sterile, but it can look very inviting, very regal, very true, very beautiful. 
And so already with this entrance, we're getting the dichotomy with the appearance of what she is and the reality of what she is. And she says to Edmund, and what pray are you? Which remember back in chapter two, what is man? What are you? Are you human? Are you a daughter of Eve? She asks the same thing. What are you? And Edmund says, I'm, I'm, my name's Edmund, said Edmund rather awkwardly. He did not like the way she looked at him. The lady frowned. Is that how you address a queen? She asked, looking sterner than ever. I beg your pardon, your majesty. I didn't know, said Edmund. Not know the queen of Narnia, cried she. Ha, you shall know us better hereafter. And this is the final irony of the chapter because she says, is this how you dare address a queen? How do you not know the queen of Narnia? And he apologizes. He says, I'm sorry, I didn't know. But the irony is he does know. He knows Lucy. He knows Susan. He does know the queen of Narnia. She is not it. So how can you not know the queen of Narnia? Edmund will discover that he indeed does know her, only he does not treat her like a queen. And also he discovers and will continue to discover that he doesn't really know himself. When she asks him, what are you? He doesn't have a good answer. He stumbles and stammers and he says, I'm Edmund. He needs to be redeemed. He needs to discover his true identity. But he has a great deal of trial to experience before then. So next week, we'll look at chapter four, titled Turkish Delight, where Edmund and the White Witch will converse. And uh, we will see Edmund betray his family and succumb to the seductions and the temptations and enticements of the White Witch. So thank you for listening. And uh, we will return next week with chapter four, Turkish Delight. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.